Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, hey, one of the things we like to do on this podcast once in a while is to bring in somebody who's practicing and or teaching meditation in what you might consider to be a, a deeply inhospitable environment. This week, We've got somebody who's doing that in, in, in spades. His name is Justin Von Boydosh, and uh, he teaches meditation on Rikers Island, the infamous jail right here in New York City. He's got quite a story to tell. Here he is. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Really Thank appreciate you. it. So how did you get into the meditation game? It started very early, and... Uh, I want to say I was in middle school. My parents introduced me to transcendental meditation. Can you just describe for people what that is? Yeah. So transcendental meditation is uh, uh, a style of meditation that was developed by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And the technique involves listening to, reciting a mantra and... Which is like a Sanskrit syllable usually in your head. usually a sound. You're, You're reciting silently and... Uh, at times, you kind of lose track of it, and, and when you notice that you do, you bring your, your awareness back to the moment and, and return to the mantra. And again, I must have been in sixth grade when I started that. So you were like just before adolescence where you were willing to take a wacky suggestion like that. Yeah, and I was a bit of a religion and uh, meditation nerd, even, really? at, even at that age. A- after having been introduced to it. Maybe even before. Uh, my father uh, is a painter, and I grew up um, going to all the, city, uh, the museums in the city. Did you grow up here in the city? In the city, yeah, in Soho. And I really began to connect with Eastern thought at an early age through the art. We'd spend weekends going to the Met, and I'd wander around and look around and, and uh, just see the Asian art. And somehow that felt very natural and comforting to me. Um, and then as I could get older and older, I would try and read as much as I could about uh, about India, about uh, Buddhism eventually, and then about Tibet. And um, from there, by the time I got into high school, I was already very interested in Tibetan Buddhism and trying to practice it uh, as best I could initially on my own, uh, and then slowly meeting people and practicing with others. So you made a leap from TM, which is essentially derived from Hinduism, mm-hmm. um, to Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. That's right. And th- how'd that go over with your, with your parents? Were they super sectarian about TM, or were they? No, actually- no, no. They were they were kind of um, groovy, experimental, nice people. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a big loft, and my mom uh, at the time uh, used to weave rugs, so we had her loom going all the time, and. We're just experimenting with a lot of stuff. So this is back before Soho was um, an outdoor mall. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There must have been, I don't know, eight kids in the neighborhood, all who had crazy parents. Yeah. I have a friend who grew up in that neighborhood, and his parents are crazy. (laughs) And I'm crazy, too. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so by by high school, you're into Tibetan Buddhism. That's right. And, uh, like, when you say you're into it, what do you mean by that? Oh, like, I I mean, it's funny now, but, um, you know, like, I really wanted to get involved with a girl. And I was really concerned because I also wanted to be a monk. 
Uh, and you know, so I had, <laughs> you could propose tantric sex. I I didn't know that much about it. Though. <laughs> <laughs> um, needless to say, I got in, involved in the relationship, and uh, um, yeah, I, I guess you could say I kind of struggled a little bit with trying to find out how to connect deeper with uh, the Tibetan tradition. And it wasn't until I went to college uh, that I went on a study abroad program in Bodhgaya, uh, where the Buddha was enlightened. In, that's in India. In yes. India, that's right. Uh, central India. And there I, I had the opportunity to study um, the Theravadan tradition, which is kind of like the earliest tradition um, that came after the Buddha. And then the Mahayana tradition, which developed as Buddhism spread to Southeast Asia and China and Japan. And then a little bit the Vajrayana uh, tradition. And, and, and everything really clicked for me. And Vajrayana, then. again, is Tibet. Tibet. Yeah. yeah, Tibet, Bhutan, Nepal, Mongolia. So what happened after the, after having after you spent your year? And I know that I'm familiar with this program because one of our previous guests, David Gellis, who's a uh, New York Times reporter, did this program. Yeah. I believe the one you're describing, where you go to Bodhgaya and you get to kind of taste test and right. the vari- among the various teachers, so uh, and schools rather. Uh, mm-hmm. So what happened to you after doing that? So while I was there, I went on a study abroad program to Sikkim, which is a state in northeastern India, which is primarily um, Tibetan Buddhist. And there I met a nun who became uh, my teacher, um, a meditation teacher, kind of a spiritual teacher. And she taught me a lot more than I thought I was learning at the moment. And so I kind of, you know, naively finished my time in India, came back to college. And really, while I was finishing college, I really kind of kept coming back to, I've got to come back, got to go back. So... Um, after college, I went back for a year and um, practiced with her, uh, and then she passed away. And um, in the interim, she had introduced me to one of her teachers who agreed before she died to take me on as uh, one of his students. And uh, he had a monastery in uh, the Darjeeling area, which is also um, northeastern India. Believe it or not, I've actually been there. All right. I was doing a story about snow leopards. Okay, that's right. Go up into Darjeeling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful place. It is a beautiful place. Yeah. So did you ordain as a monk? No, so I never did. Um, and actually, it was this nun who saved me um, from that. I had gotten really um, rigid and calcified kind of in, in the way I approached, way I had approached Buddhism at that point. And this nun, uh, Anizangmo, really pointed that out to me and showed me that, okay, yes, you could ordain as a monk, um, but you're probably going to create problems for yourself when you come back to the U.S. People are going to look at you. You're going to be dressed funny. Um, they might make a big deal out of you. So it's better to just be yourself. And um, I could hear that a little bit. And the parts of me that couldn't hear that just decided to say, all right, you know, she has more wisdom than me, I assume. So uh, I'm just going to listen. And I decided not to. So when you went on with your life, what does that mean? So that means I um, eventually became a parent. I came back to the States. And for a while, I'd been a contractor. Um, So I was doing carpentry and stonework and stuff like that, um, painting. And um, I would work, save money, go to India work, save money, go to India. And between jobs, decide, okay, I'll go for six months this time. And then all the while I was practicing uh, and studying, 
uh, more and more deeply uh, until I decided, you know, I, I kind of need to bring this together. I can't really have this be so separate. It feels a little um, strange to have a part of me that lives kind of in India while I'm not there and then have this part of me that's here. Um, so I decided to train to become a chaplain and um, thereby be able to, to kind of combine uh, what they call in the Buddhist tradition, right livelihood, well, develop right livelihood, which is um, a livelihood where you can be in harmony with your practice, your meditation practice. I'm always trying to figure out whether that's the case with me. <laughs> Sounds like it. Eh, yeah. You do good work. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> so, so you trained as a chaplain and you picked, I don't know what your, I know where you work now. I don't mm -hmm. know where you work before this. Maybe it was your first place. But eventually you landed in a what many people would assume would be a, a reasonably inhospitable environment for Buddhist meditation, That's right. Rikers Island. Yeah. So how did that come about and how's it going? Well, I'll answer the second question first. It's, it's going well. I came to Rikers from hospice. I had been a hospice chaplain um, and um, I'd worked – in home hospice covering Brooklyn, part of Queens, uh, and then home hospice uh, units at Columbia Presbyterian and uh, Cornell Weill Medical Center. And I loved the intensity of it, um, and I became uh, very attuned to the dying process and found a lot of peace in this very, very difficult process for people. And well, what do you mean by that? Letting go, so letting go of, of one's own life, letting go of a story we might have about ourselves. Um, if you're the loved one of somebody who's dying, it's it, sometimes the terror of letting go of the person you love who you may have shared your life with. You know, there's this thing called terminal agitation that arises sometimes for people when they're at the end of life. I've seen it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so um, there's a lot of beauty and being able to be with people and help support them, help provide a little bit of peace, a little bit of calm. I've been doing some hospice work myself. I got tra trained to do that through the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. And uh, so sitting at the bedside with mm -hmm. people who are dying. And, and um, I, uh, I would say the same thing, that there is, oddly enough, peace in that. But for sure, it puts things in perspective. It sure does. In my own life. It sure does. Yeah. Um, and it puts you in touch with a fundamental, unshakable, un non-negotiable reality, which is we're all heading in the same direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, I was in the first uh, graduating class from the New York Center. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we, we, we have the same pin, I'm That's sure, right. yeah, you get when you graduate. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. My wife and I did it together. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And um, you there know, are previous what, guests on the show, Chodo and Koshi, I know, the, the, yeah. the amazing founders who just got married recently. Uh, um, Robert Chodo Campbell and Koshin Paley Ellison, two Zen priests who uh, recently got married. You could look it up in the New York Times. That uh, my wife and I were there actually, and um, uh, applauding. Um, and they founded the center, and they've been guests on this podcast. So listeners, go back and check them out because they're amazing. Anyway, I interrupted your story. No, it's okay. Um, so. I really, really loved hospice work, and I, I still do. I don't, I don't do it now, although it does overlap with some of the work that I do now. Um, while I was doing that, I, I also ran a Buddhist temple in Brooklyn, which has since closed. 
And part of the work um, with that was um, I would volunteer at Rikers along with uh, a group of people, um, sometimes anywhere between one extra person and six people. Uh, we would all go and provide meditation for the inmate population um, at um, Rose M. Singer Center, which is the female um, uh, the facility for the female inmates. And uh, I loved that. You know, the first time I went in there, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And uh, over the course of about three years— Really? I, I just let me stop you on that. Mm-hmm. What do, <laughs> I, I was suspecting—I've been to a lot of jails and prisons, yeah. and I, I've never had the thought of, wow, this is amazing, other than, wow, this is an amazing story, yeah. but not like, this is amazing, I want to be here. Well, I, you know, that's, that's the way it was. You know, when I when I arrived there, I met with um, the women who participated in the group. Uh, what, I, what group was this? This meditation group. Oh, they had a meditation group. Well, okay. well the one that I started. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. And um, I would start off by checking in with them and just you know asking them to tell a little bit of their story. And it was really their stories that that I found very very galvanizing. Um, I tend to bristle at uh, how intellectual um, American Buddhism is and that a lot of the it functions in these circles that are very academic. Uh, they tend to be big universities and, and there's a lot of great work being done there to you know study um, you know how meditation uh, you know benefits us, right how how our mind works. And that's great. And at the same time there's this whole other group of our of society um, that, doesn't really have access to this. And I think it really was, um, I'm going to say it was growing up in Manhattan uh, in the time that I did in the early 80s that really made me naturally connect to um, the more common person. You know, New York City back in the early 80s, when when I watch movies, I mean, I love watching movies that are set then because it's it's raw. It's real. It's um, things aren't being hidden. We're still graffiti on the subways. Yeah, absolutely. People urinating on the street, um, which they still do, but it you know, it's not the same. I yearn for those days of the urination on the street. So do I. I'm, I was kidding. But anyway, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you don't come to Rikers, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, so I think that really, for me, part of my spiritual formation um, circles. Uh, around being able to um, practice and uh, be available in the vernacular, you know, so to speak. So for, quote-unquote, the common person, whatever that means. Um, And so it was really being with these female inmates and listening to their stories and listening to, you know, that they were hard stories and, and a lot of them were sad stories, but they were also stories that I could imagine myself in. And it was very easy to also see the humanity in these stories and the huge and, and wide range of emotion of being separated from your children, um, c- coming to, to jail because you feel safer than you might on the outside. You know, all these things that we tend not to think about as we um, you know, walk around the city or we commute to wherever we work or do whatever we do on the weekends. And so there was something that was very compelling um, for me in that. And then simultaneously, as I did my hospice work, meeting people in their homes in Brooklyn, so deep, deep, deep Brooklyn, 
you know, all of these different homes, all these different neighborhoods, old Italian neighborhoods, old Irish neighborhoods, the projects, and, you know, different different parts of Brooklyn. Um, and really beginning to understand the, the democratic nature of suffering, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. that um, doesn't matter where you live. This is what's, you know, this is what happens. And, and yet, and also the beauty in that. Um, when I worked in hospice, the hospice really picked up that I love meditation. And so then uh, all the social workers would ask uh, patients, you know, do, do you want to do any meditation? And if the patients consented, then I would then uh, sometimes go out of my, my zone and um, go practice meditation with people at the end of life. And I had the chance to do this for very wealthy hospice patients and very poor hospice patients. And everybody had the same fear, you know, this fear of no longer existing, mm. you know, this anxiety around saying goodbye to family, making sure that your loved one's going to be okay, making sure that your kids are going to be protected. It didn't matter how wealthy they were. No, yeah. no, not at all. And so um, you started with volunteering and with this women's group, mm-hmm. and, and now you're there full time? So, yeah, so what ended up happening was uh, I was then invited to start working with the young adult male population as um, there had been this push to increase services for um, the young adult male incarcerated population at Rikers. Well, that seems like a tough group, having been a young adult male. Um, uh, that sounds like, I mean, I wouldn't have been receptive. Yes, and it was uh, it was that way sometimes. And, and at the same time, I quickly learned that, um, you know, it's really how you can connect to people has a lot to do with how you're walking into the situation and presenting yourself. And I think with meditation, um, you know, people think of um, these like, again, you know, people who have the time, who can afford the time to meditate, the people who can afford the, the ability to have a peaceful place to meditate, which, you know, is connected to economics, right? Yeah. So very easily you could walk into a, um, a cell block and people would be like, you know, who the hell is this guy? You know, what's he doing? Oh, he want meditation, right? Okay. Like, I need to meditate now, <laughs> you know, right? I'm here, here in jail. And so I learned very quickly that it's about developing relationship. Okay, so yeah, I'm here to teach meditation. Do you know what that is? Like, no, uh-uh. And then... Okay, well, do you know what peace is like? You know, have you ever had that moment, even while you're here? Have you had a moment where you feel like you get a little bit of rest and be able to appreciate the experience you might be having, you might be having right now? And then, you know, very easily it would be yes or no or man, shut up, (laughs) you know, or anything like that. What do you do with man, shut up? Um, I I try and redirect, you know, come back around. All right, look, you know, I get that. Let's just try this, you know, two minutes, okay? Pretend you're a scientist, you'll, you'll check this out. If it feels okay, you'll know it works a little bit. And I'll be like, ah, oh, like, I don't know, man, that's, you know, it's this, it's that, I know, you know, it's, it's not hard, right? I can't be like, you know, hard and meditate. All right, well, let's see. Well, what about Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant? Um, exactly. You can, you can enlist a lot of allies. Um, yeah. And in warrior warrior cultures, like sure. you know, um, 
single-pointed concentration is an important thing to have. Uh, samurai. That's right. So I ended up working with that population, and then um, as services increased and and I was still a volunteer, uh, I found myself spending more and more time on Rikers Island. And then this position became available. And it was a fascinating position because uh, right now I'm the first ever chaplain for staff for the New York City Department of Correction. Oh, so you're not working with the inmate. That's right. And that was the hard thing for me. Um, I had become very, um, very attached to, um, you know, the work I had been doing there. And, and yet, at the same time, I was invited to provide meditation for a group of officers um, in one jail facility for about nine months. And it really wasn't until I started working with the officers that I began to kind of understand the complexity of incarceration and that there's suffering on both sides. And also the, the same level of, you know, initial emotional um, closure that both populations at face value when you first meet them as an outsider have. You know, in the law enforcement uh, community, you don't really talk about your emotions much. Mm. Right? You don't um, talk about vulnerability. Right? You kind of keep your armor on to protect yourself. And it's very similar for the incarcerated population. So I found a lot of parallels, and then I began to um, recognize a lot of the difficulties that arise for um, the officers in the Department of Correction, and that they have a lot of them have families and whole lives and uh, you know series of aspirations that they like to have come true over the course of a career, and yet um, they tend to be overworked. Um, or feel they are, and um, work in a very unpredictable place, a place where it's not uncommon for uh, officers to be assaulted. There's been a lot of controversy, as you know, about mm-hmm. Rikers, a lot. Sure. And a- a- allegations, rampant allegations of uh, mistreatment mm-hmm. by the staff. What's your view on that, having, now having spent some time there? Well... You know, again, I'm, I only started last September, you know, as a full-time uh, chaplain there. And I think, you know, my answer to that is that there's human suffering everywhere. And, you know, the big policy issues, um, I'm a chaplain. You know, I don't have the, the power or the ability to, to change anything. But I do have the power and the ability to help change the experience of the people I'm with and the people I serve. So my being hired, I believe, was connected to this realization that the administration understood that the officer population needs more support, right? And um, I believe the reason why I was hired was because they wanted somebody who would do more than just prayer as a chaplain, right? More than just a religious person coming in and offering religious support but actually somebody who can come in and offer um, programming around meditation for um, the officers. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. 
third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. What kind of buy-in are you getting? Are people willing to do this? Yes, absolutely. Like what percentage of the staff do you think is actively meditating at this point? Well, I mean, you know, it's a staff of 13,000 people, and, and there's me. <laughs> you know, so um, it's a work in progress. Um, but it, from the groups that I run, um, there's, there's pretty good buy-in. That being said, uh, you know, again, it's this process of creating relationship, right? a, a process of allowing people the space to, be, to get vulnerable and to share and to um, you know, put their armor down a little bit. And, and I guess if they sign up for your group, they're willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, there's a certain sort of selection bias, I would imagine, in in that if you, if you sign up, you're willing to do it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that if you walked into a meeting of at the union hall with a thousand people that all of them would be willing to do this. Right. And that's probably the case everywhere. Yeah. You know, I mean, for sure. But, and also you got to start somewhere mm-hmm. that's and, right. and hope that they evangelize within the community. Right. There's that, right? And, and so what I do is kind of, um, you know, Meditation that's taken from a number of traditions and kind of um, uh, adapted to fit a wide kind of variety of people who who might be coming, right? Um, and at the same time, my my role also uh, as staff chaplain uh, allows me room to help develop programming that um, so maybe we could get um, you know a mindfulness training program in. Or um, we're working on trying to get some folks from Kripalu to offer uh, it was kind of like breath work uh, meditation uh, in for the officer population. Um, there's a lot of support of me by the administration and a lot of room to, to develop programs. So, you know, a lot of this is, um, you know, in, in Mahayana Buddhist tradition, there's this bodhisattva model. And so the bodhisattva is this uh, kind of pre-Buddha 
who um, acts out of compassion to try and um, benefit beings. And that's what I'm trying to do um, in a small way. And in the midst of the heat of everything that's going on right now um, in our culture around mass incarceration, and my view is my position allows me to be somebody who interacts with people in a direct way. Right? I've, I've never been the kind of person who can you know, organize and um, I have friends who are you know, very uh, effective organizers right? and uh, social justice folks. And that's great. But for me, it really is about being able to meet people where they are one-on-one and help soften the experience, help allow them to be themselves in a place where maybe they didn't want to. Or maybe they've, you know, typically people will work, you know, a full 20 years and then retire. So what if you've been working 15 years and you've just been hiding all of your emotions, all of your anxiety and all of your fear, you know, that are associated with coming to work? And it's, it's locked in you. Is it safe for these people to show emotion on the job? I try and create safe space while we do this. So maybe, maybe they're not doing it on, on, the, on the tiers or I don't know what they call it, That's in the right. yard or whatever the terminology is there, but uh, but with you, mm-hmm. it's okay. Yes, with me, it's okay. And I'm very careful. Uh, if, if a group becomes very open and very soft with one another, you know, people are able to actually express how they're feeling, express how hard things are, right, or express what's going on at home um, and, and how hard that is and therefore makes work harder. Uh, then I take great care to make sure people don't necessarily go right out to their post from that place, right? People need a little bit of an on-ramp. When we're so vulnerable, it's very difficult to modulate very quickly to a place where you need to, um, you know, kind of suit up and, um, you know, take um, the abuse that they might take from, um, you know, the inmates. And what's your sales pitch, for lack of a better term? I'm sure you don't like that term, but what, why, if you're talking to a corrections officer about why he or she should meditate, mm-hmm. what's the argument? I mean, will it make you better at your job? Will it make you better able to handle the stresses of the job? What, what's your argument? So it's, it's many-fold. I, I, you know, the primary uh, hook, I guess you could say, is um, stress reduction. Yeah. And um, really the reason why I use that is because that connects um, very easily to health, right? And then physical health as well, right? If you're stressed out and uh, working really hard and maybe doing double shifts and and not bringing the best food for you and not getting exercise and not taking care of yourself because you're you're stressed out, you're anxious, um, maybe you're feeling shut down, right? Wow, Ben, this isn't really what I signed up for. Or, you know, like, well, this is just hard, right? It affects your body. And, and the other side of my work is, um, you know, providing spiritual and emotional support for officers who are sick. So I visit them at home. I visit them when they're hospitalized. Um, I visit, you know, when, when, when they die. I visit um, their families. Uh, and I'm involved in their uh, you know, funerals and and what I've found is that it's not uncommon for correction officers to have strokes when they're in their early 40s. Wow. You know, yeah. wow. uh, heart attacks, you know, in your mid-40s. And it's not really necessarily because, oh, they've got b- a bad diet 
or because they don't exercise. In some cases, that is true, but that's also primarily a function of just you know having not very strong self-care techniques, right? And self-care means self-appreciation, which means being open with oneself. But now I was with uh, a police officer, mm-hmm. Sergeant Raj Johnson in Tempe, Arizona in January, riding, riding along with him talking about uh, uh, the, the, the police department in Tempe, the chief, who's uh, also a previous guest on this podcast, is really into meditation mm-hmm. and she's trying to get it out to her, her folks. And I, so I was asking him about it, and he was worried. He had, was not yet a meditator, and he was worried that if he did it, it would make him slower and softer at the job and, and that it would be dangerous for him. Mm-hmm. Is that something that the corrections officers worry about, and should they worry about it? They shouldn't worry about it. Um, they may worry about it, and I think, though, that that's a little bit of an assumption that um, meditation um, just makes you slow. Um, meditation increases awareness, Right? And awareness can actually connect to situational awareness, which is really important, um, especially in jail settings because they're, they're closed areas, right? There's not a lot of room. Um, and that also means that things can happen very quickly. So if you maybe are less stuck in your head and more able to just be aware of your surroundings, right? maybe put down one's own irritation or frustration that um, people are yelling, um, one's own irritation around not even wanting to be here, right? This is my job, but man, I just can't take this right now, right? We all feel that from time to time. And if we're able to be a little bit more aware of the fact that, yes, I'm feeling that and I have this job that I need to do, it is possible to be more attuned situationally to what's going on. So it's very easy to say that meditation makes you soft, it makes you light, it makes you compassionate, and it does, right? But that doesn't mean that you can't uh, do the job that you need to do. Even though you grew up in Soho at a time when people urinated publicly, um, you still it was a pretty pr- privileged upbringing, but parents who were painter, um, you know, uh, a painter and um, um, somebody who did some work on a loom. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a pretty, a pretty supportive sure. environment to parents, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not having been there, I'm speaking mm-hmm. some, somewhat based on assumption, but sure. I think safe assumptions. Um, so, but now you find yourself in Rikers, mm-hmm. and so I would imagine you're, you've seen some things that you that pretty far outside of the trajectory of your experience. Um, can you give me a sense of some of the more uh, wild moments you've been able to experience in, in your time there? Well, and how does meditation help you? Help me? Deal with yeah, it? yeah, sure. So. Um, I'll, I'm going to bring this back to hospice first because, um, you know, when I started in hospice, uh, I was surrounded by death all the time. Um, and it was a pretty sudden transition into that. Um, previously, I had been around people who um, do die. So I covered a, a medical ICU, and there'd be a death occasionally. Um, in coming into hospice, I was surrounded by death and um, would have moments where I would have sometimes three or four patients spread out over a very large geographic part of New York City actively dying at the same time, all of whom wanted the chaplain. And learning how to deal with my own anxiety that would arise in that moment, right? My desire to be in all four places at one time, but the knowledge that I can't get there. 
um, and learn how to handle um, even, you know, the sense of ownership that happens in crisis, right? In crisis, sometimes we just want to make it ours um, mm-hmm. and learn how to um, chill out, learn how to slow down and realize that this is not about me, even though I'm having these experiences, these responses. Meditation really helped me with that. It evened me out so that in the, in the midst of intense crisis, I can do what needs to be done. Um, so then when I came to um, New York City Department of Correction, I was stunned by the violence. And it's not that it's any more violent than any other place necessarily as far as I know, as far as jails go. But I had not dealt with people who were being brought to the ER because of, they'd been assaulted by an inmate or um, uh, just the number of times that might happen. And did you witness any of this violence? No, because um, I don't, while I do visit the jail facilities, I, I don't really necessarily visit people often while they're on post. I do sometimes, but I don't hang out on post, right? Because that's where they work and um, that's where they need to be alert. And I'm very mindful of not being a distraction um, in that way. That being said, I do tour facilities to check in and see what's going on on the ground, see what people need. Um, uh, you know, again, in, in law enforcement, people don't really share their feelings. So it could be you've had a couple family members pass away and you're on post and it isn't until somebody comes to meet you that you learn that, and then um, and then you can provide some support, some relief, you know, help them work through that. Um, but it was really the response to my my coming to grips with what responding to those people who had been responding to violence brought up in me. That was very hard. And then you know, to be totally frank, um, I'm a pretty liberal person. And so now I'm, you know, working in law enforcement. And there was uh, a time when um, the previous commissioner had asked me to, you know, wear a uniform for, you know, formal occasions like funerals and and things of that nature. And, um, you know, I hold the rank of uh, deputy warden. Um, And so there was my own need to kind of reexamine this identity that I hold on to or held on to very tightly and just say, look, like, you know, I'm doing this to benefit people. And maybe the clothes don't matter. Go back a second. You talked about what, what, it, what the violence brought up in you. What did it bring up in you? Anxiety. Um, hopelessness in the sense that, you know, like an existential hopelessness. Like you know, people are going through this, right? They're going through this. And it wasn't even really the amount of violence just facing officers, you know, I'd, I'd see the reports of what was happening, you know, inmate on inmate, right? And then, um, and then, you know, you can't help but um, project and try and, you know, play these stories out in your mind that, um, wow, you know, all these people who are incarcerated um, grow up in violence. Wow, these COs, right? They work in a really intense atmosphere, right? And they have families. And sometimes they, they, you know, come from the same communities that um, the incarcerated, you know, the de- detainees come from. Um, sometimes they know one another. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the level of, of complexity that exists, um, you know, again, because I only know New York City, 
and just the way our communities work and don't work is astounding right now. What does your daily practice look like? So my daily practice is primarily a combination of two things. One is um, in the Tibetan tradition, uh, we um, do a lot of visualization. So it's visualization practices, um, visualizing myself as perhaps a particular Buddha, um, the recitation of the mantra. Um, so this kind of sound, collection of sounds that ha doesn't necessarily have literal meaning, sometimes it does, and using that as a way to focus the mind. Um, and then at the, at the same time, um, not during the same session though, um, then there's non-conceptual meditation like you find in, in the Zen tradition, um, where you just focus on um, trying to maintain awareness of what's happening in the mind, so one's thoughts, right? one's emotions. Um, and um, in a way, you could say it's it's a little bit like watching clouds. You know, and sometimes the sky gets stormy, right? Sometimes my mind is stormy. How can you, from what position do you watch your thoughts and emotions? So I try to create the space in the experience of meditation so that it's as objective as possible, which means that I'm not looking at this from the perspective of my body, right? I'm just trying to allow the things to come and go. That, how do you do that without getting distracted? Do you do some pay attention to the breath for a little while so and, then, yeah, and then you open up and look at whatever's happening? Yeah, typically with these kinds of meditations, um, you use the breath. Um, you can use mantra silently. Um, you can use um, mantra out loud as well, just as a way of kind of bringing you back to some element of stability of mind, right? And then you just kind of, it's a little bit like uh, rowing a boat. And, you know, you have a paddle, you paddle, you paddle, and then you let go. So in a way, it's a little bit like TM, um, except the goal, if, there, if you can say there's a goal, is to just be able to rest naturally in the moment. Right, which, so you're which is hard. Right, and you're so you're hopefully just resting in awareness. Mm -hmm. right? That's right. Just this ability to know what's happening without thinking about it. That's and right. if thoughts happen, don't get too wrapped up and carried away by them, but just watch them come and go. Right. Yeah, I think in Tibetan there's an expression to like set up a spy cam in your own mind or something mm -hmm. like that, which is you know you're, you're just kind of like spying on what's going on without getting caught up in the stories. Exactly. And there, there's some kind of really interesting um, descriptions of, of what it's like. And, and there's one that's like, it's like an eye trying to watch itself. <laughs> so it's like, doesn't make sense. And that's, and, and because kind of conceptually it doesn't, right? It's not like um, there's a spy cam that's placed right on the identity of Dan. So, but where is the you that's watching the stuff? So the you that's watching the stuff is not something that you try and orient yourself around, right? The whole idea of the me, um, you know, we're just trying to be. We're trying to um, rest without any particular point of orientation. So who's doing the resting? Justin. But Justin isn't something that is right here that I'm really worried about in this moment. You know, there's this um, element of relaxation that needs to be present. 
you know, when when my mind becomes agitated, right, or or just very active, right, it comes back to Justin and Justin's story, right, and Justin, oh boy, you know, I, I really need to um, do X, Y, and Z, or um, you know, my phone goes off because there's an alert. I need to go, you know, to a hospital or something. Um, and then I'm kind of really brought back into this point of orientation, this Justin. But in the moment of this meditation, you just try and let go, right? And what's amazing to me when I do that is everything kind of just slows down. And stress and anxiety and worry and agitation just dissolve. Just to be clear, you've done a ton of practice um, as compared to, say, the folks who may be listening or me. This is not something that's uh, that somebody could walk in off the street and just do. Yes and no. Um, well, you know, right. I, yes you know no. I have I have done, um, you know, 20 plus years. And, um, you know, I, I also don't like to really look at it as something that um, – you have to have put the 20 plus years into to have that experience. You know, I come back often when I teach meditation to trying to teach it from the perspective of making art. And I think a lot of this has to do with growing up with parents who, um, you know, were very creative. And that, you know, there there's something about the experience of meditation that has a lot less to do with actively doing anything uh, in a willful way and more just kind of relaxing into some kind of experience from which, for example, a painter might paint. What is an everyday experience that ever, we've all had that would be some approximation, facsimile, microcosm of what you described before about you, what you're experiencing in meditation? So maybe you go for, you go for a run, right? So you're, you're jogging. And you exercise your whole body, right? And you're feeling kind of tired. And you find a nice patch of grass, and you just lay down. That sense of stillness, that sense of relief, that sense of ease. Uh, in fact, there's a meditation instruction uh, in the Tibetan tradition um, that says, when you rest your mind, you should rest it the same way a, a workman would rest, sit down and rest at the end of a hard day. So stillness. I get that. I get that part of it. But that doesn't necessarily give you this meta-awareness, this what I often describe as a behind-the-waterfall experience where you're not caught up in the river of thoughts and emotions, but you're actually out of the traffic and watching mm -hmm. it with some non-judgmental remove. Mm -hmm. How do you get there? So by settling. First settling, and then what happens? No, it's settling, and then it happens. Uh. So when you settle, so it can be fast, right? Same way, you know, you're jogging, you lay down, boom, you know, there's a change. It's, it's all about recognizing this space in the changes, right? So thoughts come, um, I could be, and, and this actually I, I frequently do in the car, right? I'm right about to, you know, drive across the city and then I'm about to go into a hospital. And um, I'll just take a moment, focus on my breath, and try and allow in that moment of stillness everything to just stop. And in that place, just rest the mind. So it's not, it's not forceful, right? You're not trying to repress anything. You're just trying to let it exhaust itself. Mm -hmm. And it does. 
Uh, that's a beautiful thing. The mind is always changing. And this is the thing that I, I enjoy telling the CEOs is, you know, if we just had the same thought over and over again, we would go insane. You know, if I just had, you know, I, I got irritated or agitated by somebody and all I was was agitation for four days, I would probably go crazy. But luckily, our mind is constantly changing. The beauty of that means that at many, 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 many different points, there's space. And it's all about developing a relationship to actually what's going on. Now, even in the normal, so, you know, in, in your life, which I imagine is very frenetic, there's space in that. Sometimes the beauty and the art, really, is being able to appreciate touching that. And it doesn't have to mean that you're doing it for 20 minutes. It could just mean that you're doing it for a minute, and then you go on to the next task. It's been great sitting here talking to you. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, how could they? How can they do that? So I've done um, some writing for Lions Roar, which is a Buddhist uh, online peri uh, periodical, um, and a little bit for Bodhidharma. I'm working on a um, book manuscript right now, um, which I hope to have published. Um, and I teach um, at a variety of places in, in New York City. I used to run a, a Buddhist temple, but I don't anymore. So where do you teach? At, at present, um, I'm, uh, I occasionally teach at Brooklyn Zen. Um, and then I have a group upstate that's kind of this informal Tibetan group. And then um, different places, Philly, Boston. Um, at this point, I'm trying to be free. So great to talk to you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very much. Come back when the book comes out. Absolutely, I will. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. 
Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.